This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Trade is awesome. Is it? No, it's devastating the working class. Um, sorry, I got, got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual, my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. I am here. I'm also here. It's uh, it's it's hot outside and the the policy discussion in here is even hot. No, it isn't. Have you been outside? It is so hot outside. Yeah, we have some hot topics. It doesn't hot, matter how hot, hot our policy hot discussion takes. is. Hot, hot takes, yes. Hot takes, hot takes. Um, so we, we were I, gonna... I'm going to offer some cool takes just to cool myself down here. Okay. I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, no, so uh, we we're going to talk about uh, uh, higher higher education first, which may be becoming free someday soon. Well, let's talk. What else? What else are we going to? Um, then, stick uh, for? then uh, uh, email email management, email server management is the hot button political issue of the day. Uh, that's quite a that's quite a, cool, a headline there. It's a cool take on a hot well, subject. We might want to workshop that a little bit. Hillary Clinton may have been a criminal Gmail user of some kind. No, wait, she wasn't a criminal Gmail user. We'll but what to, I am going to explain is that uh, this law is hiding something important. Yes, yes, the hidden truth. And I'm going to talk about a, a research paper that actually changed my mind about something, about about trade and China and uh, a, a boring law that passed in the year 2000 that turns out to have devastated American manufacturing. Okay. All right. But first, we're going to start with higher education. Absolutely. So we are going, the kind of big policy news of this week, I would argue, was Hillary Clinton's Um, higher education plan, where she very much borrowed an idea from the Sanders campaign and proposed, I believe it was on Monday of this week, making college free for families earning less than $125,000 a year. This is kind of like Sanders light, I would say. You know, Sanders is calling for making college free at public universities for all students, um, you know, regardless of income. So then you have Clinton coming in, definitely moving to the left of where she's been, where the Democratic Party has been um, on higher education, but not moving quite to where Sanders was. And, you know, I think the reason we wanted to talk about it is because it's just a really interesting policy idea that's starting to get a lot more attention. And it kind of raises some discussions about how we think about higher education fitting into the suite of services that we offer American students. I think we're pretty used to looking at K through 12 and saying, obviously, that's something we're going to provide for free to everyone. But then you get into higher education and it's much more of a debate. We're much more used to paying for tuition, much more used to that being something some people get and other people don't. And, you know, this question is kind of being pushed by the, you know, increasing costs of college, the increasing importance of having a college degree. We're ending up in a situation where college degrees are much more necessary, but they're much harder to get, that they become quite expensive as as states made a lot of cuts to their budgets during the recession. They're the ones who typically fund these universities and they are, you know, making those cuts. They didn't really come back after the recession. So you have the situation where it's quite important to have a college degree, also much less affordable. Um, I don't know. I might throw it to Matt. Or, no, no, I'm going to come in no, first. Right. I'm going to cut Matt off because I want to make a, a clarifying yes. point. This would not make college free. Uh, the, yes. the language we use around this set of policy ideas sort of uh, annoys me because I think it actually, in ways that 
are not useful, obscure as what these ideas are. This would make for the families who are affected tuition go down to zero at state colleges. But a lot of people, when they go to college, they spend a lot more on books, on room and board, on all sorts of associated costs that are really important and end up being a real significant barrier to going to college. And it would not make those free. If you want to leave home and go attend Ohio State University, it doesn't become free in the way that I think people think of free elementary school education being free. I would say – I think that's important. As as an add-on to that, a a, a point that I had not – fully fully understood until I, I delved into this more recently is that, you know, for most students these days, you already could go to community college for very little money, uh, not necessarily 100 percent free, um, but quite, quite cheap. And a big portion of the student debt sort of burden that's outstanding. And the people who sort of, you know, real pointy-headed like wonk types are most concerned about are people who are going to um, non-traditional uh, schools. You know, they're doing uh, uh, for-profit schools. They're doing online education. They're doing different kinds of like trade schools, you know, uh, for, for cosmetology classes, things like that. And these proposals, neither the Clinton nor the Sanders proposal would touch that large segment of the population that is not um, going to like traditional four-year state university and for whatever reason doesn't want to go to local community college. And that's where there's like a, a disconnect between the sort of political interest in like tuition at a state university, which is something Bernie Sanders talked a lot about and now Hillary Clinton is stealing some pages from from his book on and kind of the like quantitatively like neediest students out there are people who are often um, not completing their degrees, you know, are coming away with like one or two years worth of student loans. Um, And that's like the thing that higher ed policy nerds really sit around and worry about is like, All these people who have, you know, not just like big debts that sort of make them sad when they're in their mid-20s, but that eventually wind up being okay, but people who amass debts taking college courses that have very little value to them, don't have the income to to repay them. And and these kind of ideas, which really move towards like subsidizing traditional state university systems, don't tackle that problem one way or the other. Yeah, when you look at there's this massive trove of um, education data that the Obama administration made available, I think it was last year on student debt. And if you look at these schools that have the leading amount of debt, I mean, it's like one cosmetology school after another. It's just like (laughs) it's such a clear pattern that I didn't really understand until we saw that, that like if you want to know where the student debt is, like go to the beauty schools. At the same time, you know, I I think you're not giving it enough credit that, you know, it is would be very I think it would be pretty significantly different from the higher education system we had, particularly, you know, just like looking at the idea, not necessarily as the way that Clinton has framed it, but maybe looking at the Sanders approach that, you know, there are definitely other costs, you know, there are other expenses associated with going to school. But free tuition would be quite different from the situation we have right now, that that's still a significant expense that folks are folks are dealing right. with. Right. I, I just well, think I just think it's it's important. Sure. I think it's important for listeners at home to understand why there is yeah. such a disconnect. That what happens is is that relatively affluent set of people has the academic credentials to like get into Ohio State University, go there, graduate, 
come out burdened by student debt and then be interested in political initiatives that would relieve them of that cost. And like that is a group of people. It's a real generational change, right, that those people are in much worse state than than their parents were, that kind of thing. Um, but those are not the worst off people in the American higher education system. We're talking about plans that are aimed at targeting the sort of middle rank of people rather than the, the bottom rank. And that's why a lot of the people in the policy community are frustrated that the discussion has like drifted off in this. Direction. Well, this is, I think, and it helps explain actually the context for what we're talking about. As you guys mentioned at the outset to this segment, Hillary Clinton is changing the plan she already had to be more like Bernie Sanders's plan, but not yet uh, as generous as Bernie Sanders's plan. And the reason she wasn't there is that Hillary Clinton and the higher education wonks she had around her believe that making state college tuition free is not a progressive idea. They don't think it's a good idea. They've, they've, bought, they've bought this argument. So Clinton from the beginning has had a policy proposal that is, compared to Sanders, is much more focused on questions of graduation rates uh, and, and some of these other issues that are of more interest in the, in the higher ed walk community. She is moving in Sanders' direction at the top line here and grafting it onto a plan that, that has some of these other, these other parts to it. But I, I do think this is an interesting way in which on the one hand, this is a real problem. Like I, I very much agree with Sarah on that. And it's a real problem that got particularly exacerbated by the Great Recession. The thing that feels so felt so deeply unfair to people because it was deeply unfair is people did everything right. Went, you know, took out all this money, took on these big loans, went to college, came out, then couldn't find jobs, weren't able to repay the loans. I mean, there's a lot going wrong in the system. And while an effort to fix that in a universal way is going to end up subsidizing a lot of people who are not objectively that needy. It will also subsidize a lot of people who, one, are needy or two, are struggling. So I don't want to use the average to totally wipe away um, uh, all of the impact there. But, you know, I think this is something that the Democratic Party in particular is going to be struggling with uh, in the coming years and something the Clinton campaign really struggled with during the primary, which is that a lot of the energy in this conversation, as in a lot of conversations, and a lot of the sort of really good headlines that get people excited don't actually address the problems of the neediest all that well. Um, this was also a fight between Clinton and Sanders on single payer. There are a number of analyses that suggested Sanders' single payer plan would in some ways be worse for the people who are worst off, folks under Medicaid, etc. But, you know, healthcare free healthcare for all was a much better banner than much more targeted uh, arguments you could come up with. And, and I think the same is true here. And this is actually separate from a question of what is the best policy. I think there's a fight being reopened in the Democratic Party about the degree to which policy should focus on the extreme poor or the very needy or the non-working versus the working poor and the middle class. And I think one of the interesting things uh, as a current is that it's Bill Clinton's administration in many ways that I think is associated with wrenching a lot of the Democratic Party's focus towards the working class, towards the working poor and, and away from some folks who were objectively in worse circumstances but were not as politically sympathetic. And now Hillary Clinton has actually often found herself on the wrong side of that fight. I would frame it a, a little bit differently. I, I think that the, the disagreement – No, my framing is great. Is a little bit about <laughs> – whether it's more important to keep the headline price low 
right? In which case you have to make sure your resources are scarce, so you have to make sure they're well-targeted, or whether it's better to make a sort of more politically sustainable program, even if that program becomes very, very expensive. So like the, the case I would make ultimately for the Sanders approach to college against even the new Clinton approach, which still has this like funky $125,000 phase out, right? It's like Hillary's going to say, look, Matt, like, why are we raising taxes in order to subsidize college tuition for people from families who are making six-figure incomes? Like, that's a waste of money, right? And, and it clearly is in some sense, right? But I would say, well, by the same token, you could say, well, we're going to charge $75 a semester in tuition for, like, high schools of people who make $125,000. And the reason you don't do that is that it's like, it's nickel and dime bullshit. Right. As opposed to the <laughs> as opposed to the basic clarity of saying, like, we think it is important for children to go to school. Mm -hmm. So we're going to build and operate school and the schools will be free. And if we need to get rich people to contribute disproportionately to the uptake of the school, that's why we have a, a tax code. You fight and you you live or die on the hill of like we should have a school system or maybe we shouldn't rather than on. Oh, no, the school system's really kind of cheap because we recapture, you know, 20 percent of it through user fees and, and, and blah, 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 blah. And something I sort of learned from watching the, the Sanders campaign, because this was a debate I had heard like in academic terms for, for many years, but that it was really true that if you outline a program that can be comprehended by like a normal person in a normal amount of time, we're going to raise a bunch of money and we're going to go do this thing, that at least not everybody likes that idea, but some people do like that idea. They embrace it. It means something to them and they and they go fight for it. And I, I think there's something, you know, correct about that. I mean, I, I have like a lot of questions about the overall American approach to higher education, but I think that if you do think that the federal government should spend a lot of money on subsidizing people's attendance at uh, state four-year universities that like Bernie's theory that you ought to just like see what it costs to make that free and then go get that money like that makes a lot of sense and if it's not worth spending the money on that you know that's like maybe you need to have a bigger rethink about like what is this all for? I don't know. So I disagree. I feel like this kind of speaks to you know in a way it speaks to a difference between Clinton and like kind of where they are in their politics but also speaks to how they think about governing like this feels so familiar to the healthcare fight where, you know, there was when you say, you know, let's do a thing that we want to do and we'll find the money for it. Like that really feels like what drove the Sanders campaign, you know, for single payer and saying there's definitely a lot of fights about how much it would cost. But there's a very clear commitment on the part of the Sanders campaign, like universal health care is what we want. And that's what we're going to go after. I think one of the things you see in Hillary's plan, you know, along with being less, it's less expansive. And it also speaks to a different type of governing, you know, thinking about what is the type of plan, you know, that I I could pass if I were elected into office. And I think in that case, you know, price tags do become very important. People are obsessed with the scores, obsessed with, you know, are they going to be able to make this revenue neutral? It just becomes this kind of live or die thing on the hill. And, you know, in that way, you know, it I think it very much speaks to the type of plans Hillary Clinton gravitates to versus one Sanders does. One of the things that really jumped out at me in the Hillary plan, I don't maybe this was in the Sanders plan, but I missed it, was a was there's a work requirement that if you are going to get free tuition, you're also going to have to work ten hours a week, which struck me as like a 
kind of odd thing to throw in there as like the starting bargaining point. It, it seems like something Republicans would bargain for in the back and forth over a bill like this. But again, you know, if I think about it in this context of, you know, how would a politician like Hillary Clinton approach a debate around higher education, you know, this seems to be the place where she would start thinking about, well, what am I going to take to the Hill that actually is space to move forward? I wish we had known about this work I know, requirement right? in the higher ed plan when we talked about welfare reform right. uh, a couple weeks ago, because I think it really does go to show how much like the mainstream Democrats mm-hmm. believe in the politics Yes. Of work requirements. Because in this case, I don't think you could remotely make a policy. It like has nothing to do with anything. Right. But just the view is, look, if we're going to spend a bunch of money on giving people something that's new and free, like – they have to work for it. Yeah, in like, this case, in this case, is actually arguably even counterproductive, right? If right, we're going right. to spend a bunch of money getting people a college education, we are going to make sure they have to spend at least 10 hours a week focusing on something. Right, it's like putting different. a work requirement in your job training. Group. <laughs> right. like it's, it's weird. <laughs> if you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners, so you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com. You check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now, you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. We are focusing here very much on how is going to school financed. And Matt, as you talked about a little bit at the beginning, there's also this question of how much it actually costs. Now, there's something here that I think is a very interesting analogy to the healthcare debate. Healthcare and education are often grouped together as very big parts of the economy. The government plays a tremendously large role subsidizing, financing, and regulating them, and costs in both are out of control. Now, some people look at this and say that's because of the government's role. Uh, The costs would not be out of control if the government were not here, like, pumping money into the system. I'm skeptical of that. I think what these two things share is that they are so deeply embedded in American life and in our culture. You need to be able to go see the doctor. You need to get a college education that they are things that families can't say no to. And so there's a lot of pressure on the government to make it possible for families to say yes. Families will mortgage their home to send a child to college or to get um, an operation for uh, their daughter. And so I think that's what ends up bringing the government in. But but here's where I think there's a really important difference in the way these two things go. So you talked a couple of minutes ago, Sarah, about Sanders' single-payer plan. One debate about Sanders' single-payer plan was how much it would cost. But another equally important is how much it would save. And there is a view, uh, uh, particularly among liberals, of how passing single-payer doesn't just 
finance people's access to the healthcare system, but it makes healthcare itself much, much cheaper, right? And it does that through monopsony bargaining. It does that through bringing down administrative costs. I mean, there's a real theory of cost control embedded in universal single-payer programs. Higher education doesn't have that quality right now on the democratic side. There are ideas and I think if I, if I read this plan correctly, there's sort of incentive systems in order to participate in this, you know, states have to come up with experiments and so forth. But there is not a theory exactly of how bringing in a lot more government financing is going to really make colleges cheaper. And there are a lot of people worried that will actually get more expensive. Matt, you've written about this at, at times in the past. Yeah. So there's some there, – there are definitely uh, movements towards a theory here and you can tell that people are trying to grope towards one. But for anything like this to work, if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders could pass their plan tomorrow, a very – big question in its long-term success would be the degree to which we're actually able to change the underlying cost of higher education. Particularly for Bernie, this is actually a real difference but between his two signature initiatives that's worth paying attention to. That, that Bernie's uh, higher education program actually requires states to reduce their use of um, adjunct professors mm -hmm. and rely more on like full-time tenure track professors, right? Which is to say, basically, Bernie is saying, I will throw in federal money if you throw in state money to eliminate tuition. But to qualify, you have to increase your cost structure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Bernie, I think, you know, you can ask a, a lot of questions about the details of Bernie's healthcare program. But the general spirit of it was that Bernie Sanders was taking on the financial interests of the big incumbent players in, in the healthcare industry, that the government was going to step in and provide the financing, but the total amount of financing was going to be lower. And like pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, people like that were going to take it on the chin. Bernie's higher ed plan is not like that. It's a big gift to, you know, state universities and to professors at them and grad students and, and things like that. And it in part speaks to the emergence of uh, academic workers as a Democratic Party interest group and, and constituency. There's an alternative, mostly conservative viewpoint that we should try to like tear this edifice down, right? And everyone's going to like watch YouTube videos. Tear down their, this climbing wall. Um, no, but you know, I mean, there was, there was an enormous amount of hype and enthusiasm two or three years ago about, about MOOCs, yep. massive, open, whatever it was. Um, you, you know, so there's, there is a sense of uh, – threat and almost siege in the sort of academic community that, you know, more and more people are upset about their loans and there's more and more uh, movement from Republicans to like get the federal government to do less subsidization. And Bernie, you know, really does want to like show up with a couple like fistfuls of dollars and, and, and like make the problem go away. Hillary is um, – walking the line where she's trying to say to students, you know, on the one hand, like, here's monetary assistance to help you out. But on the other hand, say to schools, like, here's like all these structural reforms. And so that's very close to the Obamacare template, which like both puts more money into the healthcare system and also asks more from it. Um, and, and Bernie's plan, even though Hillary has moved hers to superficially copy it on the free tuition point, is, is quite different in spirit. And it, one of the weird parallels I think about with healthcare is like this almost seems like what Sanders or, or you know, single payer advocates would rail against in the healthcare system. So like one of the big 
frustrations you hear, like I hear this all the time for people who email me about single payer, is like you're giving all this money to these actors that are keeping some of it and they're building fancy offices or, you know, they're building an education, fancy climbing walls. And why are you empowering these actors to be in charge when you could do it better, when you could, you know, one of the weird things here is that some of these actors are government-owned actors. These are state universities that we're talking about. One thing, this is, you know, slightly a different direction, but I know something Matt's written about and thought on is the actual structure of this plan of how it works um, with the states, which, you know, I think has stayed pretty similar in both iterations and is another, is something else that feels like a weird twist to this. So the way that this works and this was very similar to how some of the parts of Obamacare were motivated is that you have a matching program. The federal government throws in some, you ask the states to throw in some. This makes it a lot cheaper for the federal government and it requires some kind of buy-in from states. And the program basically relies on both sides saying, yes, we want to spend money on this. Um, and it's a much smaller match than the Obamacare Medicaid expansion. I think you've looked at the yeah. Obama Medicaid is 90 percent. And it raises some questions about, you know, how you think about this going forward. And would this end up with like what you see on Obamacare, where you have a divide between liberal states and non-liberal states or liberal states have this access to things and, you know, Republicans states with Republican governors generally opt out and say, no thanks. Yeah, I mean, the, the Medicaid grant is so generous yeah. that I think you really have to question right. that. And I should that, say it was 100 percent the first three right. years. It wasn't 90 percent. Like, you literally have to spend no money to well, get it, money. Right. So it's 100 percent for three years. It's 90 percent after down. that. Yeah. And you're losing compensatory funds for uncompensated yes. care, right? So yeah, you really have to question, I think, the basic good sense of Republican politicians who are turning that down. I mean, it's fine to oppose the program in principle, but the but the state-level Republicans who don't want to accept the, the Medicaid expansion are being um, – I guess to their credit, they are sticking to their guns. They are they are standing on a on a point of ideological principle over a sort of common sense make the state budget work. Uh, these higher ed matches are significantly less generous. It's, it's like two thirds, and they come with a lot of regulatory strings attached, uh, which currently don't exist. Whereas Medicaid is already there with strings attached, and there's no equivalent to the taking away of the uncompensated care money. So, I think you really have to ask yourself, like, who is going to say yes to this offer? Um, certainly not a Republican governor, probably not any kind of Republican state legislature. You, you know, you, you would need, like, total Democratic control. And I think it doesn't go um, without saying that even Democrats would want to do it. I mean, one reason that states cut higher education funding so savagely during the Great Recession is they had to cut something, right? Um, and when you're going, like, through the budget, right? You see, you have your costs related to pensions, employee, you know, there's stuff that's in union contracts. You can't cut that, right? There's like your Medicaid program where you would be giving up lots of matching funds. And also you're talking about, you know, desperately poor people's health care. Then you have your college and it's like, well, can I ask middle class people to go more deeply in debt? if they want to go to college and earn more later. And it turns out, you know, you can, right? I mean, you don't need to you don't need to love that outcome, but like it works, right? We saw that people choose to keep attending state university, even if it means substantial debts. Like people people think college like is is good and, and worthwhile. 
if the state is really, really flush, then of course, you know, you can you can get this federal matching money and, and sort of go to town with it. But, you know, you got to ask yourself, even if you're if you're the governor of Rhode Island, right, which is facing some budgetary woes, but it's Democrats. And it's like, well, so what am I going to cut? In order to put my one third of the chips in to go here, am I gonna am I gonna cut elementary schools so that I can you know increase uh, subsidies for for college students? I mean, you know, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But it it strikes me as something people would have you know difficult internal debates about. Speaking of different difficult internal debates, let's send some emails. Send some emails. So this was the week that a very troublesome issue for the Clinton campaign more or less got put to bed. Uh, The FBI director came out in a very unusual press conference and said they would not be bringing any criminal charges against Hillary Clinton related to her emails, uh, where at the State Department she used a private email address on a private server that ultimately – that was both against the rules and ultimately ended up sending a fair amount of classified email. Clinton, by all uh, accounts, did not have any intention to like screw this up and did not – had not like wanted to create a large security risk for the United States of America. And as such, there is no criminal case to bring against her. Uh, the FBI director did say she'd been extremely careless. He gave Republicans a good talking point. Republicans ended up not being able to stop there and are now trying to investigate the FBI director, which is backfiring on them in an interesting way. I actually don't want to talk about all that. I want to talk about a reality of this particular situation, which has been frustrating me since this issue came up. Anyone who reports with public officials in Washington, people whose communications are covered under these kinds of transparency statutes, knows something that I think has largely been omitted from the coverage of this scandal. And that is this. When a senior public official would like to tell you something that they would not like to see printed on the front page of the Washington Post or something at some other point, something they do not want to see turned over – they move the conversation to their private email address. You'll be, move, you'll be going back and forth with somebody on their public email address or their .gov email. All of a sudden, you will get the, your next email from their Gmail account, which is always interesting, or they will call you because neither of those things are tracked. And so it is the case that we have these transparency laws and then whenever public officials feel like what they're discussing is sensitive in a way that they don't want it seen later – They just move. They say, hey, can we meet for coffee? They give you a call. They move to their private email. And what Clinton did – and I don't pretend to know why Clinton did what she did. I don't know if she was trying to be secretive, if she was just – thought this was more convenient. I know a lot of people uh, in different jobs who – I actually take that possibility seriously. I know a lot of people in different jobs who end up evading security measures because they find using uh, their corporate or in some cases government systems to be a pain in the ass. But – She went all the way. So she took – there's an equilibrium which everybody else in Washington uses, which is completely effective at making sure the public doesn't know things you don't want them to know. And then she went too far and got herself in a lot of trouble. But – and fair enough. She should have gotten in trouble with this. She deserves the brickbats being thrown at her. But the thing that I think that we need to do some thinking about um, is one – whether this policy equilibrium we have is actually a good one because if we've just created a system where officials are episodically opting out of it 
while we get the illusion of real transparency, that is actually not a good system. Two, the classification stuff, I think, really spoke to a very serious and pre-existing issue of overclassification, retroactive classification, et cetera, in the U.S. government. And I worry that instead of drawing some real lessons from the Clinton thing that could be useful, it's just getting subsumed as total partisan warfare in which no one is interested in making anything better. But there's a lot of interest in seeing which kinds of political points can be scored on both sides. Yeah, I, I would add to that that I, I think people should actually take more seriously in some ways Hillary's like stated view of this, which is that she wanted to get her email on her BlackBerry. And so she engaged in a massive somewhat – I, I guess not illegal, but against the rules thing. And it, it sounds – I know that this sounds silly to people, right? Because it's like, why would you do that? I know lots of people, many, many, many yep. dozens of people who are constantly violating government security guidelines for exactly the reason. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you had a job and the job said you cannot get your email on the smartphone that you want to use to get your email, but it would be really, really easy to just break the rule – like everybody would do that. I broke this rule at the Washington oh, Post. I was going to say at the Washington yeah. Post, we were not allowed to use Gmail. Yeah, so the, it, the secret yeah. Gmail uh, underground. Yeah, so all of us had like – and then one day it got shut down when they figured out everyone was doing right. it. We were, we were all in Lotus Notes and it was like <laughs> the fucking craziest thing. So, and, so, and so we yes. all used Gmail. Then they shut it down. And then from that point, I just told people like if yeah, you email me G- on my Washington Post email, I will not email you back. <laughs> so everybody just emailed me on my Gmail. Right. So, so Ezra was the Hillary Clinton of the Washington Post. <laughs> no, and the thing is, is that when you do it at your normal job, you're like violating some dumb IT department rule. When you do it at the government, you are also violating a dumb IT department rule. But it's like the government IT department. So and it, I, we should say when you were – the reason Hillary Clinton I think really does deserve the criticism here is when you're a secretary of state, you are – like what you are talking about and the value of breaking into your email is incredibly high. But I, I – but, but this is – but people are – we really forget this. Like people are human. They take shortcuts. They're like set in their ways. The, and the reason I happens. think this is a problem though is that when Hillary Clinton came in, as Secretary of State and was told she couldn't use the device she wanted to use. And then she saw that Barack Obama had some kind of custom iPad that the NSA had worked on. And then she asked if she could get that and was told, like, no, she couldn't. Like, what she should have done, honestly, is, like, talk to the president and said, like, can we make federal IT policy better. There are tens of thousands of people who work for the federal government, right? This is a huge pain in everyone's ass. I bet tons of people are breaking the rules. I bet the IT guys aren't totally crazy and there actually is a security risk in people breaking the rules. We should fix this because what important high-level politicians are supposed to do is solve – like make public policy better. And Hillary, she, she does that. Oftentimes. But like what was done here was like Obama got himself a special bespoke I'm the president workaround. (laughs) Hillary was like, I don't know. I'll have some guy in Westchester set me up with an email server. And then Ezra and I, you know, we were talking about there's just tons of people running around in the government 
carrying two cell phones or doing weird shit uh, on the you, wrong email accounts. And like they're supposed to run the government properly. And you want to know how you know this? Something that I thought was a very interesting wrinkle of this. Remember that everybody who received an email from Hillary Clinton during this time in the government, which was a lot of people, every email from her was coming from at HillaryClinton.com or at Clinton, whatever the whatever it was. And if everybody else in government was only emailing people off of their .gov accounts, that would have looked super weird. But because they are not, the fact that they were always getting these bespoke Clinton emails didn't look – I mean they should have noted it. Somebody should have stopped this. But this wasn't a secret. It was on every email sign-off she had. And because everybody is breaking this kind of rule all the time, like nobody flagged this as like a devastating issue and like shut it down. Right. And I think – I mean it speaks to kind of a mismatch between the laws we have and the technologies that we use and whatever – so I try to think through, like, okay, let's say, like, I'm starting from scratch. I'm making a new, you know, open government law. Do I record? I, I mean, like, what do I, what do I do drafting that? Do I record, like, the text message conversations? Do I? Because I, you know, I would push back saying that I think the laws are a little bit more effective than you know, you're giving them credit for. There's a lot of good reporting and journalism that comes out of FOIAing or you know making freedom of information requests for emails, where you find I think. Not where people are emailing journalists where, you know, these are press savvy people who are going to know like, hey, I should pick up the phone at this point. But you have a lot of people like in government who are just like not thinking about a reporter ever reading their email and then there's a FOIA and then it's on the front page of the Washington Post. Like I think of like the healthcare.gov story and there was so much that was put in email that like I'm sure people totally regret. So I think there is some, you know, teeth to this that that's not fully being avoided. I'm curious, you know, so you've thought about how people avoid it. What would your approach to regulating it be? I don't know. And I agree with you. I mean, I do want a lot of this transparency. Um, And certainly as a journalist, I want the ability to go through these emails. I want the ability to write these stories. I also want people to continue communicating. It's a very interesting – one interesting thing here is that one of the ideas of WikiLeaks was that if they can make big institutions very uh, afraid that their internal communications would be leaked, that the – breakdown in communication would begin to destroy the institutions. Like there, there was a, a very – a really interesting and I think probably correct actually ideological theory about the ways in which uh, eroding the security of people's internal – the privacy of people's internal communications makes it very hard for these things to operate. So I think there's a cost uh, or an opportunity there depending on how you look at it too. I don't really have a good answer to this but I think it's a question that – and I know this is like a bit of a dodge. Like I think it's a question like we need to ask. Like one, what are we actually trying to get? Right? What what are what are we trying? What kinds of communications or what kinds of ends are we trying to um, achieve here? And then two, what would be the best ways to do it? There are things that might be more complex or more bespoke than just sort of hoovering up communications uh, that that might be actually useful. You know, again, I don't really know what they are. This isn't something I'm an expert on. It's more that I think there's a question of are we are we really upset about this happening? Are we really upset about the idea that in Washington, officials at very high levels are managing to evade our email transparency laws? If we are upset about it, then the problem is not just Hillary Clinton's private email server. The problem is happening all the time. And what everybody else has done is find a better way to hide it than Hillary Clinton did. Like she did it in a way that was very obvious. Um, or maybe we're not that upset about it and, you know, we just go on like this and we say it's fine. You know, we just want to get a flavor of these discussions. But when things get weirder, like we're happy to see it taken offline. I, I don't know the answer. But 
I, I think this is a reality people should understand. I think the push for transparency laws is a big mistake. If you talk to historians, right, they say that the quality of the historical record actually deteriorates after the passage of, of these kinds of laws, in part because people move more and more sensitive communications to these impermanent things. Huh. That when there wasn't like required recording and mandated disclosure, just a large enough share of important public officials wanted to leave a public record of their involvement in major issues of the day that like they would save copies of the memos that they wrote and their letters to various people. And they would like keep it hidden and private. But then at some point near retirement, you know, they would give it to whatever university and it will be, you know, the Dan Rostenkowski letters at, at whatever. And there's no like shortage of random documents uh, depicting, uh, you know, the, the events of, of the New Deal era or something like that, even though obviously there are particular conversations we don't know what happened in. Um, we still have the problem that when people really don't want something recorded, they don't record it. But we've created these just like layers and layers and layers of weird compliance. And it just it does doesn't change the fact that it's like people leave a record of what they want there to be a record of and not of what they don't want there to be a record of. And I think it's had like really significant secondary costs in terms of people not being able to use like the main technologies that they do. Um, now, that's not to say there shouldn't be like government disclosure of anything, um, you know, of like official activities. But to me, I think the idea that conversations between people who work in the government, which is like what we're talking about, right? I mean, you're an assistant secretary of state and you need to have some back and forth with an undersecretary of defense about some issue with like some diplomats and an army plane somewhere. And it's like, why does that all need to be on the public record? Why does everyone need to be thinking all the time when they're communicating about this, like, oh, God, rather than saying what I want this guy to know right now, I need to think what I'm comfortable having in a newspaper a year from now. Like, it's that's a bad – there's a reason no private organizations operate on that basis. But, so I think you're – I think you're both thinking of, like, a very small subset of people who work for the government, which are the ones we interact with the most, the people in press offices, the people here in Washington, D.C., the people who, you know, wake up and read the Washington Post every, every morning. But most government employees are not those – people. So I would make the case for kind of more recording of those emails and would say, like, I want as many emails as possible because you have a lot of people who aren't really thinking about the transparency laws and the way that they make decisions, you know, that could end up mattering like, you know, as we're trying to understand why policies are set the way they are. Um, you know, the thing I'm starting to think about as we have this conversation is there's a story I wrote earlier this year about this nurse in Seattle. She caused a fatal error to a patient, and a few months later, she committed suicide. And the way I reported that story was very reliant on um, emails sent between different officials in Washington state. And, like, these are people who I don't think thought, like, gave a second thought to the type of FOIA laws they have in Washington. You know, they were just scrambling to be, how should we investigate this nurse? How should we figure this out? Um, you know, there's Probably some stuff that, you know, I never got to see because it happened in a phone conversation and or it happened in some way that was offline. But there was so much that was valuable for me to understand, you know, how public officials did their job in this very sensitive situation. So I think you know, when I think of the 
broader universe of people who are subject to these. I am you know, happy that these conversations are monitored, even understanding that there's a trade-off of some of those conversations, you know, not happening because of this. This is an argument against interest. Um, and definitely this equilibrium is very good for the press. It's very good for us. It's for, like your story was amazing. But I am way more uncomfortable with it down that down the ladder. Like I am pretty comfortable saying that for Hillary Clinton, a cost of being one of the leading national figures of her age is that her communications are going to be pretty public. Uh, and she's going to have to really think super hard about what she says and what she doesn't say and who can hear it and when they can hear it, you know, all of that. I think having an, a, a policy environment in which what you're really doing is grabbing communications from people who didn't understand that their communications could ever become public. That's asking a lot of ordinary public servants. Um, I think it's a real, if they understood, it's like a real disincentive to being in public service. Like it's another way it's shittier to work for the government than to work in the private sector. Um, It's going to trap people who just were not writing for public consumption. It is so amazing how much pretty innocuous private communication feel can can really be terrible when pulled into a context in which it wasn't originally there. That's a place of transparency that I agree is is kind of good for us, but that makes me uncomfortable. Um, I don't know that the benefits to public understanding are worth the harm we will visit on people uh, who just did not know what they were getting into because they were like working in some random job. I have strongly different feelings, (laughs) but I think maybe we'll move on to our research paper of the week. Everything should be secret all the time. (laughs) Oh, you guys are so wrong. People don't want to know. Okay, research paper of the week. This is a paper by uh, Justin Pierce and Peter Schott. Uh, Justin Pierce is with the the Federal Reserve Board. Peter Schott is with with Yale School of Management. And it has a conclusion that I think to some people will sound super banal, but they say that around the turn of the millennium, the United States changed its trade policy and that let Chinese imports uh, devastate the American manufacturing sector. Um, And this is roughly what people think. It's true. So, but it's not what a lot of the smart policy people in Washington think is true. Um, because people will point out, it's been pointed out to me that the United States did not lower tariffs on Chinese imports. Uh, at any time it's in, in the recent past, that the big change in U.S. trade policy toward China came in 1980, when as part of the long-term consequences of Richard Nixon's opening to China, they were granted what's called normal trade relations status. So they get um, you know, tariffs at a, a low rate, not as – we don't have a, a free trade deal with, with China the way we do with Mexico and now with Chile and, and South Korea, so some other things. Um, and so – this has been something that's been been told to me by by a number of, of smart people and that they persuaded me of, which is that like people are really freaked out about competition from Chinese imports and they want to blame American trade policy for this, but there was no American trade policy change. Um, and so it's hard to address this concern. Uh, so what they're Research shows is that that's not true, that in 2000, we switched from giving China normal trade relations status and then renewing it every year for 20 years, and we gave them permanent normal trade relations status. And that sounds like a really, really, really small change, uh, but they show that it made a big difference. And they show it because they look at 
industry by industry, the gap between the normal trade relation tariff rate and the, I don't know what you call it, abnormal uh, tariff rate. And they show that it actually varies enormously from industry to industry. And they show that the uh, impact of Chinese imports and impact on American manufacturing employment is way, way bigger in the industries where the gap between normal and and non-normal is really large. Can I I hold you? Because I don't feel like I fully understand this identification strategy. Indeed. Tell me a little bit more what the abnormal and normal like give me an example of abnormal normal rates. Okay, sure. Um, you know, so you could have something where uh, at the NTR rate, you know, the tariff is like five percent. What is the NTR rate? That's the normal trade relations. <laughs> All right. So you have two sort of tariff schedules in the United States. One is called the normal trade relations schedule, and one is the I don't know what you call it, but it's the non-normal trade right. relations schedule. Um, so the the non-normal tariffs are higher. Um, but how much higher they are varies incredibly from product to product, right? So the the average gap is about 12 percentage points, but it goes as high as 35 for some items and as low as zero for some other items. Um, so we went to NTR with China in 1980, and then it was renewed in 81, 82, 83, every year, so on. And then in 2000, Congress stopped doing the annual renewals, and they just said, it's NTR rates forever. Um, And what they show is that in the seven years following making it permanent, there was a huge surge in Chinese imports, specifically in the industries where the difference between the NTR and the non-NTR rate is really big. Even though the NTR rates had been applied for the whole past 20 years, it turns out that people involved in those industries had been very nervous about the threat of expiration and they hadn't really invested in supply chains that were built around So, that. So let me just ask, like, let me yeah. sort of example this out for a minute. I, and I'm using totally hypothetical numbers yeah. here, but T-shirts are, let's say, have a very big gap between the non-normal and the normal tariff schedule. Yeah. And even though let's say that the normal tariff is 10% and the non-normal tariff is 30. And even though the t-shirts had actually been at 10% every single year since 1980, there was fear in the t-shirt retail community, t-shirt production community that there would be some year soon when they would like snap back to 30. Yeah. So investing, you know, in a bunch of like t-shirt supply chain stuff could become super unprofitable four years from now when some politician who didn't like China came in and, you know, everything changed. Well, and you especially see this not in an industry like T-shirts, but in something like car parts, right? Uh Where it's like maybe you could save $6 per car by outsourcing some particular spark plug to China, right? But the car itself is like really valuable, really, really important. So you don't want to jeopardize your entire production chain by making it reliant on a company that might be forced out of business by congressional action next year. When you make it permanent, you can say, okay, we're going to save the $6. We're going to go with with the Chinese So there's something else they did in this paper too that helped me understand it as I was reading through it multiple times before this, trying to understand it. But can you talk through the comparison they made to Europe? Because I thought that was very helpful to actually like getting their conclusion. Yeah, so this is another just sort of big picture thing is they they say, well, look, if this was a change that had nothing to do with American trade policy, we should have seen the exact same like China shock hit Europe, right? Um, But they show that it didn't. 
fact, right, that it, that in Europe there's there's no there is an increase in Chinese imports, but it's not as big and it's not concentrated in these same industries. And that's because Europe went to a permanent normal trade relations status with China way, way, way earlier. Um, so you see the impact is specifically in the United States. It's specifically in the industries where expiration of NTR would have been a big deal even though it never happened. Um, and so it, it – I mean it just – it seems pretty convincing that this thing Congress did in 2000 that, you know, there was some debate over but it was not – those of us who are old enough remember that the NAFTA debate was like a big deal politically. It was like on TV constantly. Al Gore was debating Ross Perot. You know, it was it was a huge fight whereas this this China bill in 2000 was – really a kind of an afterthought um, and, and not treated as like a, a huge deal. But it turns out to have had a, a really substantial impact on, on the American economy. And that also makes sense of some of the political fallout where I think a lot of people have sort of noted that in an economics textbook, right, a big increase in foreign imports um, will create winners and losers. The winners should outnumber the losers, but you could have some kind of compensation scheme. But, oh, in reality, you know, we forgot to compensate the losers. And one reason you might forget to compensate the losers is if people didn't actually understand that the policy change you were making was very important. Oh, interesting, yeah. There wouldn't be like an initiative to say, well, we need to bargain around this. Or they didn't even understand like necessarily where the impacts were going to be felt because you might say, oh, this isn't going to really alter the gasket industry, right? Tariffs on that have been low since 1980. This isn't a big deal for you, right? But it turns out it is a big deal because of this like stability of, of the supply chain thing. So different political actors don't necessarily know, you know, who is threatened by this, who should be asking for some kind of side payments, what's it reasonable to, to offer. I don't want to make it out to be completely unintentional. Obviously, the purpose of this was in some sense to facilitate trade with China. Um, but it was not regarded, at least in my recollection, as a huge deal. And, and as I say, even in retrospect, I've heard policymakers simply say, you know, nothing, nothing important really happened. So I think one of the things this highlights that, you know, we didn't understand as well before this paper came out is that there was like a clear trade-off that was happening that no one really knew about at the time. Like you said, like it, I do not remember this as clearly when it was happening. And when was it? 2000 or so 2000. when I was 15. Um, I don't have a great memory of it, but from everything you've said, and I've read about it, that there wasn't like this thought about like, well, you know, what are going to be the pros and cons and how are we going to manage that? So I think, you know, it seems to raise kind of a question. And this is, you know, more general than, China, but basically how we think about trade liberalization and like realizing like, hey, those things that were in an economics textbook generally prove to be true, that there are going to be losers. And like, do we think that the benefits of trade liberalization and the cheaper goods that we're getting are going to be worth the kind of trade-off that we're making? And kind of understanding, it seems like in retrospect, that you know, whenever you're altering trade, even if it in ways that you might not think are big alteration, that there's the possibility of some very significant changes to very specific parts of the workforce. Even I think if you looked at the American workforce at large, you might not be able to find this connection between employment and this China change. But then you focus in on these specific areas and then you start seeing those sort of changes. And it, it raises a question about policy priorities. Like what are our priorities with trade and like how do we think about the people who are going to be losers in that? I think this is one reason that I am very skeptical of winners and losers 
frameworks when thinking particularly about things like trade, but about a lot of things, actually. I don't think we are good at predicting with any kind of granularity the winners and losers of complex policy changes. I mean, sometimes you can say, look, we are giving a tax cut to people who make less than $50,000 and like, okay, the people making less than $50,000 will probably be winners, except for the fact that maybe you're going to pay for it later on down the road by cutting a, a key social program. So even something as straightforward as that can be very complex. But particularly in trade, I don't think that there's a stable equilibrium with a lot of trade in it that does not include, one, a fair amount of economic growth, and two, a pretty high level of redistribution. And so when I kind of hear, I mean, I'm not saying trade adjustment stuff doesn't help. It clearly helps a little bit on the margin. But this is somewhere where, you know, I think that we would be better off taking a pretty wholesale look at policy. And I mean, I think it's where things like free college or single-payer healthcare or a Medicare-based public option in Obamacare, things that would help a lot of people who might need help really end up mattering. Because I'm not sure, like, if you if you like come in with the humility to say, we're not going to know everybody who is a loser here. And you say, well, okay, what are the characteristics of people who are going to be losers going to be? Well, you can actually target those characteristics. I mean, there might be a bunch of people in the town who are characteristic of the people who would be losers for this, but some of them actually might find a better job. Right. Like and so it's you, fine, but some right. others drop underneath 100% of the poverty line and then you have policies that are really helpful for like them. Like if you were to bring this paper to like a TPP debate and say, okay, we know this now right. from the yeah. China thing, like who are the groups we need to, you know, do job retraining with? Right. It'd be I would, crazy. It'd be like a big shruggy, like, eh, like... It seems, you know, in retrospect, like this is a totally plausible theory saying like, oh, it's of course it's going to be the gasket makers and the T-shirt makers because they had this big gap. And like we can trace it back um, from 2016. But like what what how do you use I mean, maybe Matt, you have thoughts on this, but how do you use the things we're learning here to think about this other trade liberalization we're thinking about and like what what we would do to make it a smoother transition for for some people who will be affected. Well, I, I think it makes the slightly paranoid attitude that the uh, AFL-CIO and, and other sort of TPP opponents have seem a little more justified to me. That like when I talk to TPP opponents, they would often have a lot of – I would say sort of reasonable-ish like concerns about aspects of the text, but a real difficulty outlining to me like in some specific terms like what it was they thought was going to happen that was bad. And I found that very frustrating. And now I, I'm just like more sympathetic to that idea that you might just say I'm going to approach this with a gnawing sense of fear and anxiety that the process did not seem to me to be one in which my interests were being represented and like something bad may happen because uh, I do think that's like ultimately the the moral of this this China story that like the the arrangement was architected by big business elite types and it worked out okay for them and there was just a sort of an inattention to the to the consequences um Brad DeLong has a, a book out a few months ago with the weird title, Concrete Economics. Um, and he has in it a sort of interesting idea, which is that policymakers, when they are making changes, should think harder about what are they hoping will happen 
as a result of this. And I think you can understand the problems with it, with this China trade in those terms, right? That if you say like, well, what was the big aspiration? It's like, okay, cheaper goods, but like, what's it supposed to look like? What are people going to do? in the future that's going to be different. And from the Chinese, they had a very clear story. It was like, we've got all these people working on farms, at very low productivity, very low levels of land per capita. We would like them to move to cities and work in factories. And the factories will sell things to foreigners. Living standards will be higher in the factory towns. And also in rural China, people will have like more land per capita. And so that is going to be economic growth. We're going to import foreign knowledge, get better factories. I'm like up and up we go. Um, In the United States, I don't think we had a great like, well, once we don't need all these guys in factories in Rhode Island making jewelry, instead we're going to do X. And like there's a lot of things that could fill out the X. It could be we're going to depopulate the state of Rhode Island because they have an industrial cluster around jewelry manufacturing and that's a low value added industry and like we don't care about it anymore. So they're gone. Or we could say, okay. Uh, Boston is overcrowded and we're going to make Providence the new hub for healthcare throughout New England and we're going to do that. Or we could say we have a job training initiative and they're going to start making solar panels and, you know, it could be anything. But we had kind of nothing. The idea was there's going to be more imports from China. Some parts will be cheaper. That'll be good. Some people will lose their jobs and we're pretty sure something will turn up. Um, and what we've seen from a lot of research from, from David Autor and, and other people is that in the communities that were hit hardest by this, like what turned up was disability insurance. And I think if you had said that explicitly, that like this is your plan, is people are going to lose their jobs and then they're going to have back pain and then we're going to give them like a modest check and possibly a raging spiral of opiate addiction, um, like that would not have sounded like a really good idea because like that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and you could – I mean yeah. you could be liberal because you could have come up with something better than that. I'm confident. Boom. All right. That is another episode of The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply podcast, where we hope someone will come up with something better than that. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro, uh, and we will see you next week. (laughs) 